You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Episode 37 of the Book of Nature podcast, a podcast hosted by three Christians who work and play in and around the sciences. With me today, we have Todd Pedler, Professor of Physics at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. Todd, what's new with you? Uh, what's new with me is uh, I just canceled my trip to Japan that I was meant to leave on Saturday for um, due to coronavirus. Oh, no. COVID-19. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they thought, the you know, the, the collaboration uh, executive board said, if you're not in Japan already, please do not come. Uh, Luther College administration said, we'd really rather you didn't go. And mm. uh, faced with the prospect of if I did go, uh, regardless of my health status upon return currently, according to the Iowa Department of Health, I would have to spend two weeks self-isolated at home. Um, to which one of my colleagues said, and the problem with that is? <laughs> yeah, that was my thought, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, only two weeks? Can I get that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but, you know, the drain on the family would be a, a lot. And um, yeah. so I decided to uh, just take the... Uh, credit that Delta was offering for the cost of the ticket towards future purchase, and we'll just see when things shake out. Oh, that's a bummer. Okay. Curse you, coronavirus! All right. Also joining us is Dan Dawson, Assistant Professor of the Atmospheric Sciences at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. Uh, how's it going over there, Dan? Uh, has uh, coronavirus uh, ruined weather for you as well? <laughs> uh, no, not yet. Um, uh, I was uh, fortunate that I was I went I went to Japan last fall for a conference, and it's not right now because I would probably be in the same boat as as um, as Todd. But uh, yeah, um, we're obviously the university is watching this very carefully. Um, and so far as I know, nothing has no cases on campus, but you know, it might be only a matter of time. But uh, as for right now, weather is still intact, we're the wind's still blowing, sun's still shining, storms are still happening. So, yeah, <laughs> you have plenty to play with, indeed. So It's an interesting feature of having a conversation with an atmospheric scientist that uh, storms are happening is considered uh, the good news. Oh, yeah. Yep. There's no kind. There's no such thing as bad weather, only different kinds of good weather, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But I I I, that's obviously said very much tongue in cheek (laughs) because opinions are human, too. Yes. But only partly tongue-in-cheek. <clears throat> All right. 
Okay, and finally, uh, I have been genetically predetermined to be Charles Hackney, Associate Professor of Psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary, located in the orbiting space station of Karenport, Saskatchewan, uh, which means coronavirus can't get to me up here. <laughs> so, in this episode, we turn to history. The history of a molecule. A very important molecule. Deoxyribonucleic acid also known as DNA. That's right, the chemical blueprint that determines the color of your eyes, whether or not you have your mother's nose, and whether or not you will enjoy the comedy stylings of John Cleese. So while the modern understanding of this molecule is a 19th and 20th century story, let's set the stage by going way back. Back into time. Dan! How's about you start us off by taking us as far back as you can? Seems that humans have always known that children can take after their parents. Uh, but what were some of the early theories of heredity? Wow. So, yeah, um, I'm going to be very brief and cover a sweeping, broad piece of history um, in just about 20, 30 seconds, maybe a minute, uh, because this is obviously a huge topic. So thanks, Charles, for that question. Um, but uh, I'll do my best. So uh, as far back as we can. So if we wanted to look really far back into prehistory, uh, the, the, there, we can glean some, po- some ideas of how certain ancient prehistoric peoples might have thought about heredity by looking at some of their um, artifacts, art that have survived. And, you know, a lot of those seem to depict uh, uh, female sexuality quite frequently there's some i thought that that um lots of ancient peoples considered heredity to be mainly through um uh the females but since uh civilization since we started having recorded language and such like that there's been all kinds of theories they've been all over the map so um most of them have centered on this idea of of the male sowing um, a seed into the female and the female providing a nurturing role, but to varying degrees of how much, how important the role of the mother versus the father was. So, for example, Hippocrates uh, believed that heredity was from both the male and the female and that um, the heredity elements came from throughout the body. So it was this sort of thing called pangenesis, uh, which is like every um, every part of the body, every organ, every um, aspect of it sends some kind of information, some kind of material to, um, to the uh, developing um, child to form it into something that looks like some combination of the mother and father. Um, I'm obviously very much simplifying some of these views, but um, uh, it is, uh, to our modern mind, these, uh, it seems so obvious now because we, we're swimming in modern science. Everybody knows what DNA is. Some of these some of these early theories are just hard to understand in that context, but we'll do we'll do our best here. But so another example is Aristotle. Um, he believed that the 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 male provided the form giving principle, whereas the female provided the form and the matter. So um, there was again that element that both sexes um, contributed. Other theories, though, were much more about. Um, much more on the side of the, the male, that the male determined everything. Female was just receptacle. There was a lot of that uh, in, in, um, before the modern science of uh, heredity and, and uh, the cell theory came along. But uh, again, it was kind of all over the map. 
<clears throat> so a couple of the earlier theories um, kind of coalesced around two of these main um, ideas. One was called the doctrine of uh, preformation. So this is the idea that, that traits developed in an embryo um, based on what was already present from the beginning of creation, um, in some cases from the beginning of creation. But this idea was that there was all this information already there, all these traits already there, and the embryo was just unfolding some of those traits, and it was determined from a long, long time before, already pre, pre, fully formed. Um, the other main school was uh, Lamarckism, which is really poorly named because Lamarck did not come up with it. It was actually a very old idea, much predated him. But this is the theory of inheritance of acquired traits. So this is the idea that, um, say, I, um, I um, contract some disease that stunts my growth as I'm growing up as an adolescent, um, and then I have a, a child there's a possibility that the fact that I acquired this trait of being short because my growth was stunted while I was alive may be transmitted to my offspring, something that happened to my body um, during my life. That's, that's an example of a Lamarck, uh, Lamarckian um, idea of heredity. Uh, and so there's been some extreme versions of that um, that have cropped up since, even since that has fallen out of favor, which... Spoiler alert, it has fallen out of favor, um, and we'll get to that as we go. But one particularly interesting example of Lamarckism is this uh, Lysenkoism, which um, was uh, a uh, political ideology that um, developed in the Soviet Union in the 50s, which was championed by a particular um, uh, agricultural fellow, Lysenko, um, who basically said, I've come up with a new theory of agriculture. It is completely in tune with the principles of Marxism. We can, uh, we can breed these um, plants to, um, we can convert one species into another. We can um, give up uh, these seeds to humidity and stuff to transform their, their, uh, their, um, their crop yields. And it was all about acquiring the plants, acquiring traits through this, um, through this uh, application of all this technology and, and other dubious, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Dubious practices to try to get the plants to do what they wanted. Um, and this was really serious. It sounds kind of ridiculous, but it was really serious because um, the science of genetics was really starting to come into play and we were starting to learn that no inheritance doesn't work that way. And, Lots of geneticists were were that tried to argue against Lysenko were were sent to the gulag or executed. Stalin himself championed it, and it really hurt the Soviet Union in the long run. Um, so this is an example, I think, of a political what happens when political ideology tries to bend the laws of biology to its will. The spoiler alert is it doesn't end well for the political ideology, and there are lots of collateral damage. So um, really, that's a really big sweeping introduction to this. Um, anybody want to add anything to that and correct anything I said wrong or expand on anything I said there? No, I think, I think you're good. I mean, the, the, the way, the way that I um, like to think about Lamarck is, is to, Oh, I'm just thinking of, he, he, he reminds me that this idea that you could pass on traits that, 
that come about because of changes in the parent before reproduction occurs. Right. Um, I, I, it feels like just so stories, you know, how the elephant got his trunk or whatever. Right. And, <laughs> you know, and, but, you know, the famous example is the giraffe, right? The, the, sure. the giraffe, giraffe, you know, giraffe, uh, develops a long neck because yeah. the parents have to reach up to the top of the trees. And as right. they reach, they stretch their necks and their children are born with longer necks and so on and so on. And yeah. So thank thank you for giraffe. bringing that example up. I had totally spaced on that one, but that's, yeah, that's the quintessential textbook example they give you to, to, to define that uh, idea. Yeah. But this was, this was considered to be self-evident for a long mm-hmm. time. Oh, for uh, sure. uh, before the cell theory of biology before we, and, and nowadays it's really obvious. We see that, you know, people resemble their parents to greater or lesser degrees, mm-hmm. but for a long time, some of that was, and especially when, when people start resembling their mother, um, was totally overlooked and not e- either willfully not recognized or just subconsciously mm-hmm. not recognized. And it seems really obvious to, to us these, today that there, that, mm-hmm. that was happening, but it wasn't obvious to many people for a really long period of time. And, in, yeah. and instead the idea that you should be able to acquire these traits, like the, the, mm-hmm. the draft and then transmit those was considered to be pretty much duh, of course, you know? Right. And of course right. now that, that idea is almost completely dead, but not completely. And we can, we can get to that later, but yeah. Sure. And I, I did I want mean, to say one more thing before mm-hmm. it moved on, um, is that uh, the, the, um, a lot of the reasons why there was sort of all these different theories um, is really comes down to um, just our, un, un, uh, we, we had to have some other scientific revolutions occur before heredity could even be tackled, because heredity is such a complex thing, even today, we don't understand it very well. But even to begin to understand it, we needed to learn that people had cells, uh, that cells make up all of um, uh, the fundamental unit of all life forms. This was not known for a long time. Um, there, you, we, there was all this idea that different humors had different, um, like the blood and, um, and, uh, and other bodily fluids were tied into all of this. And no idea that there was this sort of fundamental unit of and that really, when we started learning what cells were, that's really when things changed. So it's just an interesting how, if you look through, just page through the history of this, how far off some of these theories were, but also how some of them actually were hitting on the right path, but they just didn't have the tools, they didn't have the background uh, pieces of the puzzle to put everything together. So I just wanted to, to end on that, but... Please continue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we get uh, we get up to the modern era now. So, Todd, uh, your turn. You take the wheel. Uh, tell us about how an Augustinian friar uh, brought us around to our current understanding of uh, heredity. Well, uh, th- so that Augustinian friar would be Gregor Mendel, um, born in the 1820s uh, in what is now Austria. Um he was a gardener as a as a kid, um, and uh, after entering the the Augustinian Abbey, um, 
in, uh, I believe, what is now the Czech Republic. Uh, he was ordained as a priest in 1847. 1851, he was sent to the University of Vienna to study and returned to his abbey in 1853 as a teacher uh, principally of, you guessed it, physics. Now, Naturally. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally, of course. Now, as a friar, he had a pl he had plenty of time uh, on his hands between daily prayers, and um, as is the case for Augustinians in particular, uh, he he devoted a lot of that time to study um, to the particular study that was interest uh, interesting to him. It may be because he worked as a gardener that he was interested to take up the study of variation in plants. Um, and I should note, really, you know, at this time in the 1850s, um, there's a long, long history of farmers and other, um, you know, other people who domesticate various plant and animal species of, of understanding sort of the basic ideas of how heredity works. Um, uh, you know, the various horse and dog varieties were bred over long, uh, you know, cycles of, of reproduction to produce draft horses and ponies. It's all one species, uh, equus equus. There's no difference between them. Um, but they, they've wide, they have widely varied traits because farmers knew how to create a bigger, stronger horse. Uh, for instance, um, his quarry in particular was uh, the humble pea plant. Um, and in uh, over this, the course of about seven years, he cultivated and tested something of order uh, 28,000 pea plants um, to uh, study the way that variations um, came about through selective breeding of, uh, of various pairs. Um, interestingly, uh, he had come across, it is apparent that he'd come across the, um, uh, the famous work of, of Darwin's, uh, on the origin of species. Um, and it did, did influence some of the things that he, he did. And this is evidenced by underlined passages in the copy of the origin of species, which is in that abbey, uh, uh, in which he was a monk. Um, at any rate, his uh, experiments on variation of species of plants or variations within uh, this, this particular pea uh, species gave rise to generalizations, which would later become his laws of inheritance that we'll talk about in a second. Um, it's also kind of interesting to note that while he presented his work at an 1865 meeting of, of the Natural uh, History Society of Bernal, uh, which is a, a city in what is now Chechia, uh, and he published a paper in 1866. There was very little impact of his work until uh, really the, the turn of the century when his work was kind of rediscovered. So what are these main principles? The principles are, are they go by the, the names, the law of dominance, uh, the law of segregation, and the law of random or independent, uh, independent assortment. Uh, let me try to work these out for us. Um, before Mendel did his work, people believed that traits in offspring represented some kind of blending of the traits of each parent. Um, what he found, though, was that the offspring um, really is a binary thing. They, they resembled in one trait or another one or the other of the parents. 
and not some mixture between the two. So um, getting to his pea plants, he looked at flower color as one of the traits that he studied. And he could find pea plants that were purple uh, in color in their flower. Um, and when they were paired together, they always gave purple flowers. And he found some uh, plants of white colors, uh, white colored flowers. And when he paired those together, they always gave white. So these varieties were then what we would call purebred purple and purebred white uh, flowered peas. If he then paired a purebred purple with a purebred white, the offspring, instead of being some kind of mix between purple and white, were all purple. Uh, similarly, when he bred purebred pea plants having wrinkly seeds or wrinkly peas uh, that were paired with purebred plants which had smooth ones, he found that the offspring were all smooth seeded. Uh, so these, where these binary choices were possible, one or the other parent's trait is respected. The trait that always came out in such cases is what Mendel called the dominant one. So uh, smooth seeds and purple flowers are this, is a, this dominant trait. Um, what never came up in those first-generation plants, first-generation children of the originals, was the recessive one, um, in this case, white flowers or wrinkly skin. Now, um, that's the, the law of dominance. The law of segregation um, uh, comes about through this kind of consideration. So he later allowed the offspring of these crossbred plants, so the first generation after the purebred parents, um, he allowed those to self-fertilize, so offspring with offspring. And in those, he found something very interesting, that purple uh, flowers uh, outnumbered white flowers at a three-to-one ratio, uh, and smooth to wrinkly at the same three-to-one ratio. Um, so the dominant vis you know, visible trait comes out in a three-to-one ratio in the grandchildren, the second generation after the purebred. So what's going on here is interesting. It, it indicates that at least with respect to these traits, the pea plants could have dominant-dominant or recessive-recessive or dominant-recessive pairings of the, the, the traits within them. Um, the combinatorics of this actually is a very interesting exercise in probability, um, which we can't go into here. But uh, when we say that the DNA encoding for a particular plate is trait is dominant-dominant, so you carry purple-purple, if you will, or smooth-smooth, or recessive-recessive, so these are the purebred white-flowered um, uh, plants. That particular individual is what we call homozygous for that trait. So they've got both, um, they've got pairs of, of trait markers, and they both are dominant, or they both are recessive. So that's homozygous. When the encoding signals dominant-recessive, so these are the, the case where we've got a purebred white and a purebred purple um, being paired to produce offspring. Those offspring will be heterozygous. So they've got purple signal and white signal. Um, all right, so, so, so when you cross the two heterozygous, so the, the, the offspring that carry both the purple and the white, when you cross those, you get this three-to-one ratio. And this happens for every trait that he studied. It was remarkable and crazy that it must be three-to-one, but it led him to this understanding um, of the fact that you've got these paired trait combinations. Um, and 
what we've been talking about is the is what we call phenotype, the way that the traits present themselves in the individual. That's that three to one ratio. So again, purebred purple, purebred white, they give rise to a three to one ratio of purple appearing and white appearing flowers. Um, what that's made up of is a um, is is important. It is made up of 25%, 25% of those in terms of what we call genotype, 25% of those children will, children, offspring, uh, will be of the dominant-dominant pairing, the homozygous dominant-dominant. And 25% will be, uh, will be carrying the white-white, uh, so they'll be carrying uh, homozygous for the recessive trait. And then 50% will have the dominant-recessive combination, um, the heterozygous pairing. Um, but the phenotype for all those is is in the three to one ratio because the heterozygous pairing appear in the dominant color purple, and the dominant dominant homozygous appear purple, and the recessive recessive appear white. Um, so um, one last uh, item is the law of independent assortment, and this I'll just briefly note um, is uh, the idea that traits of one kind don't talk to traits of the other. So the combinatorics, the, the probability of giving birth to, so let's say we had two pairs, two different trait axes we're dealing with, wrinkly smooth and purple white. Those two don't influence one another at all. So whether the flowers are purple or white, whether they are heterozygous or homozygous in the purple-white spectrum, that has nothing to do with whether their seeds are smooth and wrinkly. So we see, you know, separation of traits. This is important for the development of the understanding that there are genes for this and genes for that, and they don't talk to one another. That's the law of independent assortment. So these three laws are sort of the basis. They're not perfect, but they're a significant start down the road of understanding how traits are passed on. Mm -hmm. They give rise to the ideas of pairing up of genes in the material inside the cells that give rise to life. Mendel certainly had no inkling of where his conclusions would lead, but the idea of the pairing up of these traits and the randomization required to make these ratios come out as they do were instrumental in later developments. And, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say while you're saying that, I just remember this from high school, and we did these experiments with fruit flies with mm. the red and the white eyes. It was the same kind of thing. If I remember yep. right, the red eyes were the uh, were the dominant, and the white were the uh, the recessive, and so we would observe the exact same thing, the three to one ratio. And mm -hmm. we, of course, we'd have to, you know, breed the fire uh, fireflies, the fruit flies, mm -hmm. um, in these little vials, and um, and actually uh, count all the ones that were born. And over, like, I think we did like two or three generations. Mm -hmm. So I remember, I remember this very, very viscerally because of that. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's the square. So you could see how the, every, all the, uh, the pairs could, the, the, the probability of different pairs. Mm -hmm. But, um, I was, um, I was going to say that it, this was just uh, fascinating that this, 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 uh, friar was just so painstaking in his observations mm -hmm. of this without having any idea of what the underlying mechanism was. And, right. and, and yet he was able to f discover these what seemingly were counterintuitive observations of how heredity worked because mm -hmm. in the past you, people would know, yeah, and people knew how to breed horses, like you said, and even mm -hmm. though they didn't have a clue about what was actually going on, 
because they were able to see patterns, but he was able to crystallize these patterns into something that could actually be used in a more robust scientific way to lead Mm -hmm. the way. For that, you would get some of these recessive traits that would disappear and, and people like, I, I don't get it. This doesn't make sense. And they would, and, and he was able just from very careful observation. Yeah. So I just, I think that's, that's really instructive for, mm-hmm. for it, it's, it's a broader example. It's, it's an example of how um, import the importance of careful observation of the natural world to mm-hmm. keep us from become being led astray by just our, our, our theories that come, that we that we come up from intuitive um, intuitive ideas. You know, you have mm-hmm. to have a, a, you have to have the observations there. I, I guess I'm kind of rambling there, but I think you do well. Yeah, yeah. You have, I mean, and you his, have to be careful. Clearly, his his mathematical training um, was important because yeah, <clears throat> you know the the observation of these particular precise ratios demands a twofold nature of of this type you know right um to get that three to one you know you i've i've filled out those those square diagrams right. too and 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 the you know the way that that must come about it it demands this this pairing up of of dominant and recessive um uh you know trait bearing genes um even though he knew nothing about that he just knows there's this sort of two there has to be this paired nature right. in order to come up with these numbers and and so you get you get even from this like you said you're the phenotype you're you're investigating the phenotype and you're getting some some hint of the underlying structure there mm-hmm. uh and and i just i find that that kind of stuff fascinating about how science works is that for sure yeah but uh mm-hmm. okay so, uh, while Mendelian genetics showed us the patterns of heredity, still remain to investigate the hereditary mechanism. So, Dan, your turn is now on you to fill us in on the history of the emergence of molecular genetics and the discovery of the magic molecule itself. Okay, sure. So, um, the, the, the backdrop to this, which I can't get into in a lot of detail, is that over from uh, the late uh, Middle Ages on through the Renaissance um, and then into the modern era period, there was this growing recognition that that uh, organisms were um, made up of individual cells. I think it was like Robert Hooke back in the 1600s who first noticed them under a microscope for in plants. And over time, it became clear that these cells um, were made up both plants and animals and that they had that they had something to do with um, heredity, but it wasn't clear exactly what yet because microscopes weren't yet powerful enough to peer too far deep inside a cell and see what was in there. Um, that started happening towards the, um, the in the nineteenth century um, with um, uh, Friedrich Miescher, uh, who first isolated this um, the uh, the nucleus of a cell, this material that he called nuclein. Um, and uh, uh, a little bit later, in eight, that was in 1869, uh, in 1878, um, Albrecht Kossel um, isolated nucleic acid, which is a component of this nucleon. So there, um, even back in the 19th century, uh, DNA was already starting to be isolated as far as its um, gross um, molecular identity. There was some um, uh, understanding of the bits and pieces that made it up, like nucleic acid. Um, 
1909, Phoebus Levine identified a nucleotide unit of RNA. So RNA is, uh, just to say a word about that, is just ribonucleic acid without the deoxy part. Um, and that is um, another um, uh, information-bearing molecule in cells that, that um, actually has several roles, but one of them is to act as sort of a messenger between the DNA and then the proteins that the DNA ultimately produces in the cells. So um, this uh, fellow identified this nucleotide unit. So that's like a single base um, construction that we now know makes up rungs of the ladder of the double helix. At the time, they had no idea what the structure of this molecule was, and they didn't even really have this idea that it was part of heredity or anything like that. But he did think that there were four types of these nucleotide units, but um, thought that they repeated endlessly in the same pattern over and over again. Of course, now we now know that that's not the case, that in fact this is the genetic code the, that is written in these nucleotide bases that, where they don't repeat in just uh, repetitive sequences. Um, so we're getting there. So this is, this is a great example of, how, of an incremental uh, jump, tiny small steps forward by different people towards a, a eventual end goal of uh, discovering something amazing. Um, so in 1927, we're talking, uh, Nikolai Koltsov um, hypothesized that the inheritance, so this is where we start getting the, the, the connection of DNA and the, and the nuclein molecules um, and inside of these, and the nuclei of cells. This is where we start seeing this connection between that and heredity. He hypothesized that that inheritance was carried by some kind of giant molecular strand. Well, actually, he was right. <laughs> so, um, but this is just a hypothesis that would be only be much later be verified. So, um, as we go on, um, uh, the, uh, Griffith in 1928 showed that you mixed, if you mix dead and live bacteria with different traits, um, it actually resulted in traits transferring from the dead bacteria to the live bacteria through the through the nuclear through the nuclein that was transferred to the live. So this was like actually the first clear evidence that DNA that was in the, the nucleus was actually carrying genetic traits that the live bacteria could then take up and, and express. And finally, as we start getting into the 50s, this is where we start getting into where, um, what most people um, know of as the Crick and Watson work. Um, so um, Francis Quick, uh, Crick and um, Watson were working at Cambridge, um, and were trying to develop a model for the DNA molecule. And I think I might leave uh, some of this for Todd, because I think he's got a lot to say about this with um, Rosalind Franklin. But the, this group was working together to try to discover what DNA was actually made of. They were using technique called X-ray diffraction, where they could shoot X-rays at the molecules and get an idea of its structure. But it turns out this is really difficult to do. DNA has a very complex structure. Um, they published in Nature in 1953 with the final um, actual molecular structure of DNA, the double helix. Um, and uh, this was the final um, identification of the molecule that led to um, heredity. Um, and so we're actually took us up until the middle of the 20th century before we recognized something so fundamental about life, not just human life, but all life that we know of. Uh, and the 
Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded to uh, Crick Watson and another fellow, Maurice, who was part of that, and the Nobel Prize in Medicine. So Rosalind Franklin had died already because of a, from ovarian cancer, did not receive it. Her contributions largely recognized posthumously. So I think I'll leave it there if anybody wants to add anything to that. And I'll let Todd uh, continue with the DNA structure. Sure. I mean, you know, there is there is the controversy, of course, and I'm not prepared to necessarily talk a lot about that controversy. Um, uh, you know, to what degree Rosalind Franklin's contributions actually were. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot. Of, I, I wasn't going to touch that. There's a lot of controversy. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's. Uh, I think I think you might have misspoken because I'm pretty sure she was alive. I do when, not no, believe so. Let me see. Let me see. Let me no, see. she she had passed away before. She died in 1958. Yeah, that I she do had know. passed away before the Nobel Prize was awarded. Oh yeah, 62. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, so she couldn't have been given it anyway. Nope. So, well, um, they, actually, mm -hmm. it's a little bit more complicated than that. They, there is a rule now. I don't know when that rule is instated um, mm -hmm. that you cannot receive it posthumously. But at the time, it wasn't a flat-out rule. It was just sort of like they didn't generally do it, I think. Tradition. And, and um, so, yeah, it's not quite as simple as that, I don't think. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. Well, okay then, Todd. Um Let's get into that technical part there. So tell us about the structure of the DNA molecule and how the information encoded therein uh, becomes the observable characteristics of an organism. We'll, 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 talk, we'll talk about the structure. I can do a lot of that. <laughs> the how it gets encoded, that's a little bit trickier, and, uh, uh, but we'll, 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 we'll do what we can. Um, so Dan's given the, the discovery story. I, I, would, I, I would have to say, though, that... By way of reminder, it's physics that gave rise to this important biological discovery. Well, of course, everything's physics in the right. <laughs> X-ray diffraction, man. That is a physics thing. But uh, but we are happy to doff our cap to, to the biologist. Actually, she was a physical chemist uh, to begin with. So, um, I mean, in biology now, modern biology is really, well, obviously, there's a huge range of it. But, you know, molecular biology is, you know, chemistry, which is you know, physics at some level. And <laughs> yes, I wish folks that we could, uh, we could bring up that, was it the XKCD comic with all the, oh, the, yes. the, the, the physics physicists thinking that they're the top and then the mathematicians, wherever they're saying, Oh, hi, I didn't <laughs> see you all over here, you know? So there yeah. You go. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Listeners should yeah. dig back into the vault and, uh, uh, get into you know to find our uh, our episode in which we talked about uh, reductionism. Ah, yes, yes. Uh, Todd might want to remind himself of it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just oh, uh, ouch! ouch. Phys yeah, physicists <laughs> require frequent uh, reminders. Yeah. Uh, of, of many things. Yeah. Yes, indeed. No, no. Um, I, it, he, you're right. Of course, it, 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 it's a physical. Uh, the the development of this technique for X-ray diffraction was. We wouldn't be able to, to figure this out without that. It's, so, it, yeah. it, is, it is merely the physicist in me who is unable to go participate in his experiment because of microbiological things who's trying to get back at coronavirus, I guess, in some way. Oh, um, okay. 
that must be what's going on. <laughs> but the ba the basic structure is you've already noted it. It's the double helix. It's structurally like a ladder that's been twisted, actually, if you will, um, twisted into a, a spiral. So I mean, two long strands that form the vertical portion of the ladder, and then the cross members connect the two long strands. Uh, and then you give it a twist, many twists, so that it it, it coils up um, in in this in this helix. Uh, the long strands, the sides of the the helical ladder, are sugar and phosphate molecules that are linked together. Uh, the sugar is deoxyribose, hence the name. Uh, uh, deoxyribose just implies that it's got two oxygens, so deoxy. Um, and these sugar molecules are linked one after another, uh, you know, spaced out by phosphate groups. So this is a phosphorus atom with two oxygens, an oxygen ion and an OH radical. Um, uh, very technical there, of course. Uh, but to the sugar molecule is linked what is known as a base group. Uh, and those base groups come in four types. So the early ideas that there be these four types are, are, are correct. Yeah. Those four types are adenine and guanine, uh, uh, I should say adenine and guanine and cytosine and thymidine, I believe. Um, if you take the two sides of the ladder, you'll have this string of phosphorus and sugar atoms. They're linked together strongly and their bases are sticking out. And what makes the two sides of the ladder connect is the base molecules themselves attracting each other and they're join they join up by hydrogen bonding the sort of sharing of electrons by hydrogen atoms that we see in the h2 molecule for instance just hydrogen on hydrogen <clears throat> so these bases that link each side of the ladder are what we call the base pairs so you got one from one side of the ladder one from the other and they're bonded together in the middle um, and they're always of two types mm -hmm. so adenine Bonds always to thymidine, thymine. and cytosine. I think it's just thymine. Thym I, I've seen both spellings. Really? So, okay. okay. Yep. Yeah, it might be one is ancient yeah. uh, and one is not. Okay. Uh, cytosine. So A, A and T bond together and C and G bond together. Right. Those are the two possible combinations and the only possible combinations. Until you get so to you, RNA and then you have thymine is replaced by uracil, I believe, right? Correct. That's, well, certain kinds of RNA, yeah. right? There's messenger RNA, there's a, uh, there's tRNA, which I forget. I don't know if that's transcription RNA or whatever. But mm -hmm. um, but in, in the DNA molecule itself, it is just A and T and C and G. Right. Um, you never get A together with A or A with C or whatever. The twisting form has to do, I mean, this is a physics thing, you know, the reason it twists is it has to do with the minimization of the overall potential energy of the structure. So it's actually favorable for it to be coiled up like that. It's mm -hmm. in its lowest energy state, mm -hmm. uh, rather than be stretched out like a, like a ladder. So you have to put energy into it to make it look like a normal ladder. And then more energy to break it apart. So it's just kind of um, like, you know, you, you have to pull, um, like if you take a slinky and like pull it, you have to pull it really hard to like straighten it out. It wants to go collapse back into a, a coil. I mean, it's probably not correct. the best analogy, but. Yeah. Well, it, no, it's perfectly fine. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and you can break a, a, a slinky. Yes. I've done this. <laughs> you can ruin a slinky. I've, oh, uh, it, yeah, it's, how many of those slinkies do you have? It's way you know, too easy to ruin a slinky, if you ask me. <laughs> the, slink, the slinkies in my house growing up always ended up, after a very short time, having that one big gap that never closes down again. Yep. Uh, yeah. it, it's really sad when that happens, too. It's like... Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah they don't go down the stairs anymore yeah. like they do on the commercials. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
What's encoded in DNA is the information that ultimately, ultimately makes itself known by uh, visible, measurable traits. Uh, the code's complex, but it really it just involves these four base types, A, C, G, and T. Um, combinations of these bases uh, in sequence make up the genetic code that dictates hair color, eye color, and probably... Uh, to some degree, Bob Dylan uh, appreciation or whatever, uh, or John Cleese, but you know everybody. Should are, are, okay, John here's Cleese. the question: Is that's your genetic is, defect? Is the don't. is the genetic determination determination of whether you like John Cleese and Bob Dylan are those linked? Are they in? Are they uh, are they separate? <laughs> um, are they dominant or recessive? <laughs> that's well. Let's see. I don't know which is rarer. Uh, whatever one is rarer probably uh, is the recessive, but okay. uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, they're not; those two are definitely not on the same spectrum, though. Right? Um, I would say, I would say for sure. <laughs> um, the, with what's critical about the fact that um, A and T only bond together, and C and G only bond together, is that when you unzip the ladder of DNA and take the two halves of the ladder apart which happens in replication and cellular processes in the nucleus, mm -hmm. um, you only need half the ladder to determine the full code. Right. Uh, and that's good. I mean, in, in the laboratory, when DNA sequencing is being done, this is what you do. You, you, you denature the DNA, so you split it apart, either chemically or thermally, and you can read off the code, as it were. Um, and like I said, in the, in the replication process that goes on when cells divide and multiply, uh, the unzipping is is, is done um, in that process, and you already mentioned a little bit, um, but uh, you know just to revisit that a little bit, uh, how replication occurs, and this is much too simplified. I mean, I'm talking genetics baby talk here because I only know how to say goo goo and gaga when it comes to molecular biology. I, um, I yeah I I'm I maybe have the same <laughs> vocabulary so right. yeah yeah. Yeah, no ex no expertise on this panel. Yeah. Um, when cells are dividing, there's a need to replicate or transcribe the exact sequence of the DNA uh, so that the new DNA for the new cell can be properly reproduced. And this takes place by the unzipping of, of a strand of DNA right. uh, and the action of this messenger RNA that you talked about, which because of the one-to-one -one correspondence of A to T and C to G... Uh, can copy the complementary structure of the strand which it's working on, mm -hmm. and then go and help the formation of the new, the newly formed DNA molecule for the new cell. Right. So um, there's 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 there's, and, and as much as heredity is concerned, it's a direct duplication. But if yes. but in order to actually express the genes that are there, you still have to unzip it. But it's unzipped, yep. and then the the strand the information is copied to an RNA, which then goes off and does its thing. And then it, the, the DNA is zipped back up. <laughs> so that's correct. A couple then different the RNA things. Are, up. Yeah, right, right. I mean, the, R, the R, you know, RNA is not nearly as long as DNA. It comes in segments. Right. And so right. It's, it's a very interesting process. Um, every cell in a given individual contains that same genetic code. Mm -hmm. Whether you're talking about skin cells, bone cells, blood cells, doesn't matter. They take their cues, the different types of cells take their cues from the part of the DNA that dictates their characteristics. But every cell has the same cookbook yeah the complete cookbook and so this work. this actually harkens back a little bit to some of these really early theories and this is what i love finding connections like this mm -hmm. um where the some of the early theories of like the pangenesis where traits from different 
different um, parts of the body came together to, and in a in a in a roundabout way, that's that that's hitting on some truth there because like you said every single cell has but it's a little bit it's complicated by the fact that every single cell has the same genetic code but they're expressed Mm -hmm. differently and so um uh it is as if the whole organism uh contributes to the the heredity but only in as much as it's the code is copied everywhere but expressed differently everywhere so right it's it's sort of like the 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 reasoning was was wrong, but the underlying idea that there was something about um, the information from the whole body is has has a ring has an element of truth to it. Um, sure, yeah, and, and this is not the way that they anticipated. Right, right, I, the, and this is why stem cells are so important. I mean, right. and, and, and adult stem cells, which um, can be used for um, for many purposes, because they've got the whole code there. Right. Uh, no matter you know, uh, and and if those stem cells are all able to then help create new cells of many different kinds, they're really 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 useful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, just to, to talk a little bit about human biology, I mean, you, you know, we um, the DNA comes packaged normally normally I should say in twenty three pairs of packages that we call chromosomes, and we get twenty three from mom, twenty three from dad to get our full allotment of forty six. In those twenty three pairs. There are places in the code that determine traits that are visible to us and others that aren't. Um, and one set comes from mom, one, one set comes from dad. And here's where you connect right back to Mendel. Uh, because you've got the dominant recessive calculus that, that I spelled out before, when you get the three-to-one ratios right. of passing on either mom's or dad's trait for eye color, uh, or perhaps the 100% likelihood of passing on both of them if both mom and dad happen to be homozygous for the dominant or homozygous for the recessive trait um, uh, uh, that's that's of interest to you. Mm-hmm. Um, now, how, as for how the information encoded in the three billion or so base pairs that human DNA uh, have, um, it's a pretty gnarly question and not something we can take up with any expertise here. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, we we can res- we can remember this. I mean, this this is the basic sum up here. DNA is condensed into chromosomes. You got 23 pairs of chromosomes, uh, one member of each pair from your mother, one member of each pair from your father. Within those chromosomes, there are sections called genes that control specific characteristics or traits. Those character, those genes have a dominant and recessive form. And, uh, we, we get the, 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 I I said calculus. Algebra, more likely, uh, probability theory, uh, that Mendel developed, and now we see the reason why. Mm-hmm. We see the reason why within DNA, which is really fascinating. Yeah. And, um, that, and it's, it's just, I agree. Just, yeah. Well, and the independence, <laughs> the, 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 the principle of independence is really important. Right. Independence of traits, because what you get then is mom and dad can be heterozygous or homozygous for each of the traits that are interesting. And the mixture comes out with this amazing array of diversity in terms of all of these traits put together. Um, It would be, genetics would really be simple if all parents were homozygous for all traits. But life would be pretty boring. And and Um, we haven't even touched the idea that we're talking about the, like you said, the relatively simple traits that are linked to like individual genes and stuff. But it's even way more complicated than that because 
uh, lots of traits um, like skin color and eye color and things like that are yeah. m- multiple genes are involved. And so it's not nearly as clear and it's much more difficult to, to, um, to tease that out. But um, so, yeah, it, it, it becomes really, really complex in a hurry. So no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. Yep. All right. Uh, we're starting to come up on our time limits, so uh, we'll <laughs> move on a little bit here. Yeah. There's yeah, too much to discuss. Uh, not enough time. Yeah. Lots of lots of complex uh, topics, things to get into. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll we'll get into a little bit of big picture stuff here, Dan. So uh, uh, why don't you tell us a few of the thorny conceptual questions that DNA research has raised for our understanding of what it means to be human? Okay. So um, yeah. So there's a there's a lot of things to say here. I'm just going to focus on a couple kind of kind of uh, themes here. So obviously. Um, the old favorite, nature versus nurture, and clearly that's that's been around for as long as humans have been around um, in some form or another, but intensified in the modern era when, when we start learning about the genetic basis for heredity, um, and, and it's it, and it, and the temptation, we mentioned reductionism a bit ago and kind of a joking passing, but the temptation here is to say, okay, we figured out genetic basis for inheritance. It's this molecule. Um, it's all this mechanistic stuff. Everything's encoded. Um, what, however you're going to be in your life is all determined by what's going on in your genes. Um, and so there's schools of thought that focus on that, that basically we're hardwired to be the way that we are. Then, um, and that has become uh, very tempting to do based on how successful modern genetics has been in molecular biology. But then there's the nurture uh, side, which is like, well, no, you, every lots of stuff that you do, the, all the, experience, the sum total of your experiences that you have during your life, whether you had a, a loving, nurturing home li- um, family, or you um, were born into a lot of wealth, or you didn't get you know, stricken with polio or tuberculosis when you were a child, things like that, um, those are what determine what you end up being like, you know. And clearly, you know, um, those two extremes are demonstrably um, not true. The question is not which one is true or not. The question is how much of each um, is really um, important in different circumstances. So... um, so uh, as part of this, there's a um, w- one way to study this is is with what, what are so-called twin studies, identical twin studies. So these were these are studies that will take twins that were identical. So that means they they come from the same exact genetic stock. Okay, um, everything about their genes at the moment they're born or they're conceived, I should say, is identical. Um, but obviously, they're two individuals, and they grow up and have different experiences, um, even from the very beginning. They may be similar very at, at early ages, and then as they go off and do their own life, then they, those, those, um, those experiences increasingly diverge. And what you can do is you can study th- different aspects of these twins, particularly those that were separated at birth, that know they had a twin, to see what kinds of, of traits are common between them and which kinds aren't. And these are fascinating studies. I won't get into all the, de- I mean, there's so much to go in here, but, but um, one particular recent study was with uh, um, Scott Kelly and Mark Kelly. So if you don't know those names, those are um, astronauts 
um, Scott Kelly um, was uh, up on the International Space Station for a year, and there was a battery of experiments to test how his um, genetic expression would change having been in space for a year compared to his brother on the grounds. And found, they found that many of the genes were expressed differently uh, upon, um, during that year that he was in space. And that there, um, a lot, when, after he came back, some of them were turned off again. So there was these differences between what genes were expressed because of the stress of microgravity on the body versus what was going on um, with Mark on the ground. Um, but at the same time, there were things that stayed the same. Like both of them responded the same way to the flu vaccine, uh, for, for example, and things like that. So th- these kinds of studies are really interesting. Um, on a more general note, when um, twin studies have suggested that about roughly 50% of personality traits, and this is really nebulous, really hard to, to quantify this, but roughly 50% are genetically determined or probably influenced, and the other 50% by environment. This even comes down to level of religiosity in some degree, to some level. And, um, one second here, um, and about 75% of IQ seems to be genetically um, determined, but still, there's, that's 25%. Um, if you take that at face value, that is greatly impacted by environmental conditions. So this leads us to the final thing that I wanted to mention on this topic, is this idea of, of, of epigenetics. So epigenetics is the, um, the study of how genes are expressed or not expressed um, in different uh, environmental, with different environments. Um, it also is a study of things that surround heredity that isn't directly related to gene transfer. So one of the big advances we made in the latter half of the 20th century was understanding that genes, you may, we, you may, have, you may have two people with the same genes, but from different environmental pressures, some genes will be turned off and not actually expressed, and others will be turned on. Um, so, for example, I have a, f- a friend of mine who has uh, celiac disease, um, which is a genetically determined autoimmune il- illness that um, attacks you where, your own, where your immune system attacks your small intestines um, and basically destroys or greatly weakens their ability to absorb nutrients from the food. And it leads to a whole host of gastrointestinal problems that are really hard to figure out what's going on unless you test for it. For it. Well, for most of his life, he never had any symptoms of this. He had the genes for it, but it wasn't until he had another um, trauma in his life where he had a a collapsed lung and ended up in the hospital for a while. Something about going through that ordeal, he's fine now, um, but something about going through that ordeal switched on those genes for celiac disease, and he started having these symptoms, and it took uh, probably another two years before he was diagnosed. So that's an example but this is happening in both good and bad ways all the time where um, our genes are being alternately expressed or not depending on what's going on in our environment or what, what experiences we're having. Um, there's also this idea of the, the hollow uh, genome. We're, we're increasingly beginning to understand that um, uh, humans 
have a whole host of of other organisms living with us all the time. Our bacteria in our gut, um, on our skin, everywhere, all throughout our body, we have probably as many, if not more, cells that aren't human cells in our body than our own cells. And those all have their own genetic codes that are being transmitted um, through multiple generations as they live in our bodies. And there's some suggestion and evidence that maybe those um, changes in those genomes that aren't our own genomes may, may uh, be passed on to our future generations through this sort of like clinging on, this, this uh, sort of external um, transfer of information that isn't directly transmitted through our genes. Did, did you just suggest cling on genes? Cling on genes. Oh, did I say clean? I meant clean space on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they kind of, they kind of like go along for the ride, so to speak. And, and yeah, not, 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 not that future generations are suddenly going to start getting um, forehead ridges and things from the bacteria in our guts. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. yeah. So that's probably not going to happen, but yeah. But those are, those are some things that we, that, that, that are bigger picture. Um, I think that, uh, um, uh, we still have to learn about. I mean, that the, it, the, the, the science of genetics and this idea that the genes are passed down through um, DNA and all the and that, all the inheritance of that, that's not going away, but it's clear that the things are more complicated than we thought, and, and there's still a lot to learn there, so I'll just leave it there. And by the way, I am not an expert on this, so I, I'm just going by some of the things that I've read and learned. And so if anybody on this uh, listening to this show is an expert in molecular biology and genetics and wants to tell us how wrong I am or Todd is or any of us, please tell us. We want to know. Okay. On that note, uh, we'll uh, skip our last bit and just go ahead and wrap up. I know you have to get going, Dan. So sure. uh, let's uh, let's talk about the next topic. Uh, when we get back together, the plan is to discuss chaos. Chaos. Dun, dun, dun. dun, dun, dun. That's right. <laughs> uh, we will uh, – it, it will be uh, Dan and I. We will be uh, talking And about, Todd. Oh, and I'm Todd. not going That's to right. anymore. That's right. Curse you, coronavirus. <laughs> yes, that means we have right. to have Todd on again. Thanks a lot. Oh, no. Coronavirus tell us, makes tell us how, how um, okay. wrong we are about uh, – Yes. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. All right, so yeah. all three of us uh, <laughs> will be here. We will be talking about chaos theory. Yes. Um, so until then, uh, listeners, uh, the Book of Nature is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. And on behalf of Dan Dawson and Todd Pedler, I am Charles Hackney, thanking you for joining us for another hour or so inquiring into the Book of Nature. If you liked the episode, send us an email at bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. Leave us a review at iTunes. So until next time, then, I leave you with these words of wisdom. An apple a day keeps anyone away if you throw it hard enough. Goodbye, all. Goodbye, all.